Um, we'll be in verses 1 through 38. So we'll read that, uh, that chunk this morning, 1 through 38 in chapter 9. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat, sat and begged? And some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. And he said, I am he. And therefore they said to him, How were your eyes opened? And he answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed, and I received sight. And then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. And they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. And therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. And others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a, a division among them. And they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him because he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees we do not know, or who opened his eyes we do not know. He is of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. And his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. And so they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. And then they said to him again, what did, he, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses, as for his fellow, as for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. And since the world 
began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man was not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You are completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking to you. And then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Father, we thank you for today, for bringing us here, and Lord, granting us this time together. Lord, we thank you for shining light, light of life, eternal life, the light of Christ into this world, into our, our own experience, our hearts. Lord, we thank you for illumination, opening up your truth to us, bringing us to the knowledge of yourself. Lord, we thank You for exposing our sin and changing our lives. And Father, we pray that You make us faithful witnesses, make us the lights in this community and in the world that we're designed to be. We know that Your truth is intended to forever change us. Lord, again, we're thankful for that. And pray that by Your grace, by Your power, You make it effective in our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. John Newton, some, some of you are familiar with John Newton. He, or if you're not, you're familiar with his, at least some of his work. He... He uh, was the author of the, the great hymn, Amazing Grace. And uh, you notice that some of the thought from that hymn comes from this passage. I was blind, but now I see. Um, and John Newton on his deathbed, and he was a slave trader um, when he was uh, saved. And uh, after coming to the knowledge of Christ and Walking with the Lord for many years, he he uh, he was after being saved became a pastor. But on his deathbed, he was uh, recorded as saying, "I know two things." <laughs> kind of like this man here. I know I know one thing. I was blind now. See, John Newton said, "I know this. I'm a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior." Well. <laughs> That's why, that should be the testimony of all of us in this room, and certainly if we if we haven't been thinking in that light, we should after reading this passage today and considering what is being communicated here. The effects of light coming into the world and into our individual lives. Now I want to just mention a couple things here to kind of uh, set the context because we are um, reading through the Gospel of John, and this is a part of it, so this this narrative that we have... Uh, that really takes up the whole of chapter nine um, is is in a in a context as part of a thought flow, and so for one thing, um, let me just go back for example to uh, just as we consider this metaphor of light. Let me go back for for a moment to chapter one and just by way of remembrance, look at look at verses um, one through three. I'm sorry, one through five in chapter one. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now, obviously, that's all talking about Jesus. He's referred to there as the Word, or sometimes we say the eternal Word, because He existed eternally. We know that that's talking about Jesus, um, for example, because in verse 14 He says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father. So now look at verse 4. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So, and then he goes on to say in verse 8 about John the Baptist, that he, John the Baptist, was not that light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the light being Jesus. So this is a metaphor that uh, John likes, and he, he gives it to us right up front in the prologue of his gospel. And then again in chapter 3, um, we read this in verse 19, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. And then you get over to chapter 6. One of the I am statements of, of Jesus is that he is the light of the world. Yeah, let's see, and I'm too far back there, but um, during, the, during the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus declares, and if you remember when we, when we were, were talking about that, the setting there, um, and it's, it's, I said six, but it's chapter eight, but the, the setting there is um, the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles, which was a seven-day feast, and in the evening, they would light, the men would light these candles and there would be great rejoicing, these lamps, and there would be great rejoicing. So in the midst of all of this and all of this celebration and this um, observance of this ceremony, Jesus declares himself the light of the world. That's chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So there again, he uses that metaphor. Now... That sets the context for where we are here, because all of that is still, um, is still in view here, at least in John's mind. It's hard to know, when we look at chapter 9, it's hard to know how much time has passed. Uh, we do know this. Again, chapter 7 and 8 is the Feast of Tabernacles. You get over into uh, chapter 10, and verse 22 tells us the discourse in chapter 10 takes place during the Feast of Dedication, which we today call Hanukkah. So it is somewhere between those two feasts, which is about three, a three-month period. So somewhere between those two feasts, um, this event takes place in chapter 9. Now, uh, again, what Jesus said in chapter 8, verse 12, is, uh, is important for what he's saying here, because there he makes the declaration. There, there is the discourse. I'm the light of the world. And if anyone comes to me, he will not walk in darkness. Here, in chapter 9... This is demonstrated. That truth is demonstrated. Real time, we might say, or real life. It is lived out. Jesus gives us a living example of the effect that the light of the world has when it shines in darkness. And it's 
a natural, uh, a, a, what we might say a natural example. I mean, it's, 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 it's a type played out in the natural realm, a, a type of a spiritual truth. But nevertheless, it's a, it's a real event, a real happening. Jesus meets this man blind from birth and gives him sight. Now, another thing that, just to kind of help us again with the context, we, we've mentioned this several times. John, when he refers to the miracles of Jesus, he likes this term, sign. And this is another sign. And what is, what is um, I, I even have to use the word in explaining it, what is, the, what is significant <laughs> about sign? Uh, notice those have the same root word. What is significant about sign? Well, a sign signifies something, right? A sign signifies something. So it's not merely um, a, a wonder or, or a miracle like we might think of it as a... In other words, Jesus is not doing these things without purpose. It's not, it's not just for show or something of that sort. It's not just to uh, merely demonstrate that He is able to do it. He has the power to do it. But it actually signifies a truth that he is communicating. And, and John is giving us these examples for specific reasons as well um, to communicate uh, something to us about the, uh, the nature and identity of Jesus. So what does the sign signify here? Um, and that's one of the things we'll be talking about as we go through this. Um, but just to kind of sum it up, it does certainly, and I said it's not merely for this purpose, but it does certainly show that Jesus has power, right? And it does demonstrate that he has power and authority um, that uh, belongs to the Son of God. In other words, it sets him apart in this sense. Um, it, it is further evidence of his true identity. Remember our, our key verse here, John 20, verses 30 and 31? John, John uh, the, the evangelist says, I'm writing these things so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and so that... Um, Knowing these things, you may believe on him and have eternal life. So John, as he's writing this gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is giving us these events um, as signs to uh, reveal to us who Christ is. And there's uh, some more uh, that it signifies that we'll, we'll talk about as well. Um, and I'll come back to that when we go through a little bit of the application. So... This chapter kind of looks back at Jesus' discourse during the Feast of Tabernacles. I am the light of the world. Even, even um, to, to some degree, looking back at chapter, what we saw in chapter 3 and chapter 1, light shining in the world and the effect that it has. Uh, in fact, uh, I would say a, a dual effect. Um, John says, light came to the world, but men loved darkness rather than light. So, so what did they do? They, they rejected it. They wouldn't come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. So that's one response. And the other response is reception. Um, so you, you come to the light, and this is John 3.19 that I have in mind here, come to the light uh, so that your deeds are exposed and that ultimately God is glorified. And that's what we're going to see a, a, uh, a type of here in chapter, in chapter 9. All right, so let's get to the narrative here. As I said, chronologically, somewhere between these two feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Dedication, um, probably still in Jerusalem, we don't know for sure. 
Jesus encounters this blind man. And there's a lot to go through here. And what I'm going to do this morning is, is try to focus primarily on uh, the event itself and, and the man and, of course, the, the purpose behind it all. And then, Lord willing, come back tonight and uh, talk about those remaining verses, uh, verse 39 through 41, along with some of the other detail in the narrative here. So they come upon this man that is blind from birth, and the disciples raise this question in verse 2. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. All right, first of all, notice they point out that this man was born blind. Now, that's going to be um, important for application, for, for, the, for the type that is being um, put forward here. Um, but before I even get into that, just consider, because this is such a temptation even today, consider what the apostles are doing here. Lord, here's a man that's been blind from birth. Now, who sinned? They're saying, what is this particular thing, this particular affliction... What is this a consequence of? And it's interesting, isn't it, that they would frame the question the way that they do. There's all kinds of implications here that we won't have time for, but, uh, but I do find it interesting that they frame the question the way they do. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? Now, think about the first option. Jesus, who sinned? Did this man sin bringing this affliction on himself? That's a very interesting question when you consider the fact that he's been blind since birth. So apparently they, they had some kind of conception that um, it was possible to commit sin pre-birth in the womb. So did he sin? Is this a result of his sin? or of his parents. And of course, that would be what we would think of as the more reasonable option. Well, um, in, in one sense, you know, because they were uh, old enough and so forth, we, we think that would seem like the more reasonable option, except it presents another problem, doesn't it? Does, would he suffer for the sin of his parents? So either option is kind of difficult to, um, to, uh, to, to think about, and you try to flesh it out, but it's unnecessary anyway, because Jesus says neither is the case. There's a third option. Now, let me say this before I even move on to that. There, there is one sense, of course, <coughs> in which we can say that all, all evil, all maladies, all sickness, all disease, um, conflict, whatever you want to lump into the category of evil, there is one sense in which it is indeed the result of sin. It's, it's, just a, it's just a result of sin being in the world. We live in a Genesis 3 world. It's a fallen world. And that is why we have things like um, babies being born blind. That is why we have war. That is why we have conflicts, even, even on a small level, you know, personality conflicts and so forth. That's why we have things that um, make the nature shows what it is. You know, one animal eating another animal. 
We live in a fallen world. So there's one sense in which certainly every affliction is the result of sin. On the other hand, um, this, this passage I think should provide a good warning for us to avoid trying to uh, make a direct connection between someone's suffering and their own sin. This is what the, quote, comforters of Job did. <laughs> and as you can imagine, that, that didn't bring a lot of comfort to Job. Especially when, just like here, uh, Job also was not guilty of sin. And, and not that he was not a sinner, but his affliction was not the result of, direct result of some particular sin. And that's the case here. So that's how Jesus answers. It was not that this man sinned or his parents. In other words, this blindness, this affliction, this suffering, his blindness from birth is not the result of his sin, sinning, or his parents sinning. What is it then? Well, Jesus tells us. It is so that the works of God might be displayed in Him. It's a sovereign work of God, and it's for the purpose of bringing glory to God. And, of course, the way that it's going to happen here is through His healing. And Jesus makes a similar statement later um, in chapter 11 about Lazarus. He says about Lazarus, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So when he's brought, brought the news about Lazarus' illness, Jesus says this is not an illness to death. This is so that God is glorified, and so that the Son of God is glorified. And it's similar here. So there's a purpose in it. And I think that's another thing to glean from this as well. There's, there's always a purpose in our suffering. Always a purpose in our suffering. That, that's hard, hard at times to see, but I think um, it's plainly taught in the Scripture, and I think there is great comfort in that. And perhaps, you know, just begin to consider Job's situation. Perhaps had Job's friends come to him with that kind of word and said, Brother, we can't explain why all this is upon you except to say that we know God has a purpose in it. And that He's, in the end, it's going to all work out for your good and for His glory. Now, if they had uh, given Him something like that, um, then, then perhaps He would have been comforted. So there's always purpose in it, but it's not always obvious to us um, what it is, and presumption is a very dangerous thing, so we don't want to pretend we know when we don't know. At any rate, here's the man born blind from birth for the purpose of the glory of God, and Jesus goes on to say, we must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. He's probably referring there to His, uh, his crucifixion and um, during that period, because certainly after the after his resurrection, um, you know the work uh, continues, and so probably here he's he's thinking when he says night is coming, he's probably talking about his his own suffering, his arrest and crucifixion. A night is coming when no one can work. 
As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, here's where we should see the, the connection between this and, and chapters 7 and 8, um, specifically 8, 12 that I read a moment ago. I am the light of the world. And it's not by coincidence that, that John is recording these things back to back, even though they could have been, um, they may have happened back to back, or they could have been weeks or even months apart. But John brings them together because of Jesus' Um, usage of this metaphor here. In his discourse in chapter 8, I'm the, the light of the world. And if anyone follows me, he will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And because of the sign that he's going to do here, which is preceded, again, by this same claim, I am the light of the world. So it seems that now what he's going to do is demonstrate what he earlier taught. Kind of a living illustration. Living picture. Darkness, back in chapter 8, right? Or even in chapter 3, light came into the world, men loved darkness. Darkness there represents alienation from God. Sin. And it's in the midst of that darkness that light comes. The Word, the eternal Word of God... The life, the life in whom was li- was uh, in, the word in whom was life, and the life that was light, and who coming into the world lights every man, became flesh and dwelt among us. So the light shines in darkness, and the darkness does not overtake it. And now you now you can kind of relate that to this living illustration where you've got a man who's living in darkness. He can't see. And he never has seen. He's been in darkness since the day he was born. And he's confronted here with the light of the world. And Jesus says this is for the glory of God and we must be about the Father's work. In other words, this is another part of Jesus' mission and glorifying God and fulfilling His work. And so, having said these things, verse 6 says, He spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. (laughs) He came back seeing. He went in darkness and he came back in light. Seeing. Now I think there's even symbolism here. And I'm going to suggest a couple of things here. First, let me just say, Uh, about the first part of it. He spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. That is, Jesus made... He spit on the ground and He made a little bit of mud out of that spit, out of His saliva, and He he put it like a mud pack on the the man's eyes. Why did He do that? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Calvin... John Calvin speculates that he did it to kind of... That is symbolically, to, to basically to double the darkness. Yeah, sim- symbolically. You know, the man already couldn't see, so he's in pitch black darkness. But, it, but it's like there's more to overcome in giving him light. Well, that's at least the possibility. And, and you know, somewhat like, um, remember Elijah's challenge to the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel when he said, you know, they set up the altars and he said, whoever calls down... Uh, we're going to call down fire from heaven, and whoever's God responds 
with fire. We'll know that's the true God. And so what does Elijah do before he prays to call down fire from heaven? Not only does he set up the, the, the offering, yeah, he, he douses it with, with water. I mean, they just soaked it. They soaked the, 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 uh, the offering itself and the, the altar. They soaked everything with water just to, for emphasis, I suppose, just kind of make it even more unlikely that the thing would be burnt up. And then he called down fire from heaven. God sent fire from heaven, burned up the sacrifice. So Calvin suggests that it's something to that effect. You know, he, he puts the mud on his eyes to double the darkness, and that just kind of makes the miracle itself even greater. Um, but again, an honest answer for me is I, I don't know. I don't know why Jesus did that. Sometimes he, he did things, he healed in different ways, even uh, in stages sometimes. And, and uh, sometimes you can, you can kind of look at the situation and, and um, you know, figure out a, a probable reason behind it, and some, sometimes you're just kind of clueless. <laughs> so I'm not sure why he put the, the, the mud packs on there, but, but Calvin's explanation could, you know, might be one that you want to think about. The, the next prob- possibly symbolic thing here, and this does kind of make sense to me, um, notice John points out, that Jesus says in verse 7, go wash in the pool of Siloam, and, and John interprets, and this is one of the reasons that scholars believe that um, um, John's audience is probably primarily Gentiles because he, he makes it his habit to in, interpret these kinds of things. But notice he, he says that Jesus told the man, go wash in the pool of Siloam, and then he tells us the meaning of Siloam. Sent. Sent. Now, Jesus has just said, we must work the works of Him who sent me. So this is one of, the, one of John's themes here, and we've seen that language in Jesus over and over and over. One who sent me. I have to glorify the one who sent me, or bear witness to the one who sent me, or the one who sent me bears witness of me, or that kind of thing. Jesus is the one, capital O, He's the one sent. The sent one. He's the, he's the main apostle, you might say. And John, again, I, I don't think coincidentally, makes the point of saying that Siloam, the name of this pool, means sent. So I think he probably intends, and I have to say probably, but it, it, it does make sense to me. I think he probably intends that, that we see an analogy there. This man is sent to wash in the pool called sent, which would represent Christ, the sent one. In other words, it would represent the cleansing power um, of Jesus, or in this case, the illuminating power of Jesus, which again um, does represent His his, um, redemptive work. But now, the man goes... And again, this is kind of the main part. The man goes in darkness and he comes back seeing. He comes back seeing. So his encounter with the light of the world changes his life. His encounter with Jesus, the light of the world, um, forever changes him. Vision is granted. You're going to see that in more ways than one. 
So he goes, he does what Jesus says, and he comes back, verse 7 says, seeing. And, and I would suggest, you know, there's probably even a, a hint there, of, uh, at least for application. Obedience to Jesus gives vision. I mean, if we just do what He says, we get, a, we, get, we get a, a view of things initially, and then I think even as we move along in our, in our Christian life and sanctification process, we, we get an, a, a, an increasing, increasingly accurate view of things. Here's a man who was in total blackness, darkness, but now, now, because he did what Jesus said, Think of all the things he can see. I mean, he must have, if it had been me anyway, I'd have probably been coming back from the pool pretty slow. I'd have been looking around. Wow, check that out. Wow, look at that. Oh, that's what she looks like. That's what he, you know. Wow, that's what the water looks like. That would be an awesome thing, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? You just, you just all of a sudden, you see all of a sudden, in other words, the whole world suddenly comes into new light. In his case, Literally, but certainly that's true for us in a spiritual sense. Worldview. All of a sudden you've got a new worldview. You know what worldview is, right? It's just you know, outlook or the way that the lenses through which you view things. So Christians, you know, we talk about having a Christian or a Christian worldview or a biblical worldview. In other words, we, we see the world through the lenses of God's truth. And that's what happens when the light of the world shines in your life. All of a sudden, you see things differently. Or you could just say it this way, since, we're, since the, the, the illustration here is blindness. All of a sudden, you see. You, know, you, didn't, you really didn't see before. We thought we saw. But we didn't see. That's the case of the Pharisees, by the way. So he goes in darkness, and he comes back seeing. This is a marvelous miracle. In fact, it just stirs up all kinds of conversation and questions here. And his friends and neighbors begin to question, is this, is this really him? You go through the next few verses. Is not this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Yeah, you see, his life's been changed now, forever changed. He used to, you start hearing this kind of language. He used to sit and beg. Later he'll be called the, formerly, the one who was formerly blind. Because there's a then and a now. Now. I mean, he's, he's, he's undergone a change, a transformation. And they're not even sure. They're, they're so taken back by the miracle that they're not even sure, or at least maybe they're trying to convince themselves, but they don't know that it's the same guy. Is this the guy that used to beg? Some said, it is he. And I've always found this amusing. They're having this discussion. You kind of picture this going on. Is this him? Some said, it's he. Others said, no, he's like him. In other words, well, he looks like the guy. It's not, not really him, but it looks like the guy. And in the middle of this, while they're having this discussion, he's saying, hello, <laughs> it's me. It's me, yes. I'm he. I'm the man. I'm the man. He's, he, he just keeps saying that. Implied by the... Verb tense here. I'm the man. I'm the man. <laughs> it's me. Well, how did, how did you get your sight? Well, he says, the man called Jesus, made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. 
Now see, that's one of the two responses I mentioned earlier. Lights come to the world, John says in chapter 3, but men love darkness because their deeds were evil. So they would not come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. They don't want to get in the light, don't want to get too close to the light because light has that property. It exposes. And they don't want their sins exposed because their deeds are evil, John says. But then there's another response. Those who come to the light. And here's the case study. He comes to the light. I received my sight. Well, they begin to ask about how it all takes place and then they take Him to the the Pharisees, and he has to go through it again. And he tells them, he put mud on my eyes. He goes through it again in verse 15. He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Verse 18 says, The Jews did not believe that he had been born blind, uh, that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called his parents. So they're, they're looking for confirmation. Uh, they don't, they, it, it's a strange thing because they know this is the man they've been seeing there begging, but they don't want to admit um, what has taken place has indeed taken place. They call his parents and his parents confirm that it is indeed him. But even they, for fear of the Jews, um, are afraid to say too much. Yes, this is our son, but we can't tell you how he got his sight. He's of age. Ask him. It's a little bit um, amazing, isn't it? The, the lack, from all of these people, the lack of joy. <laughs> the lack of, I mean, you think they'd just be rejoicing with him? Here's this guy we've seen blind and begging, especially the parents. He's been blind since birth. And rather than rejoicing over all of that, they're worried about being put out of the synagogue. Because, verse 22 tells us, the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he should, he should, um, uh, they were to be put out of the synagogue. In other words, they were to be um, excommunicated, disfellowshipped. And that is exactly what, uh, what they wind up doing with this man. Now, the interrogation with him continues. And again, this is what I want to kind of focus in on. And uh, Lord willing, um, we may be able to come back to some of the detail tonight. So for the second time, verse 24 says, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. Good advice, by the way. Uh, they didn't have good motives here, but uh, what they say is good nonetheless. Give, God, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. That, that's quite a statement. They... Jesus has told them repeatedly, you don't know who I am, you don't know where I'm from. And, and they will admit this. They go on to say in verse 31, um, we know that God does... Uh, or, I'm sorry, verse, um, verse 29, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. They, they admit they don't know where Jesus comes from, and yet uh, they're quick to say, we know that this man is a sinner. Now, I love this guy's response. Verse 25. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. 
One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. (laughs) Here's one of the things I want to key in on. This guy is truly and genuinely changed. That's, That's always the case. You can have an encounter with Christ. And we've got a lot of individuals in this room, right? And, and every individual here that, that truly knows the Lord Jesus, um, we could all stand up and give our testimonies, and there's going to be a little bit of variation. But there's also going to be a lot of things that are the same. One of those things is radical change. I mean, you went from from one extreme, essentially, to another. From darkness to light. Now, this man is truly changed. And the evidence of that is already beginning to come out. Now, at the same time, let's notice here that, that, it, that it's not as, as clean as, it, as we would like it to be. I mean, here we are on this side of the cross. We, we've got um, the totality of Scripture... It's done. I mean, they're not writing any more Scripture out there. I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. <laughs> it's completed. So we've got the totality of God's written revelation, Genesis through Revelation. And we're on this side of the cross, and we've, and we've known the Lord, walked with the Lord, and we've studied Scripture. And so when we see a statement like, I don't know whether he's a sinner or not, that sounds pretty strange to our ears, doesn't it? In fact, you might, you might be tempted to, to, um, to, to doubt. Now, did this man really have an encounter with, with the same Jesus that I know? What's wrong with this man? Jesus is the sinless Son of God. Well, I'm going to make a confession here, all right? Um, when, when, when the Lord saved me, um, my theology wasn't very good. In fact, I still find that it's pretty messed up in places, you know, and I'm, I'm still being corrected and still learning. But especially, you know, when I think back about where I was when the Lord saved me, and I'm, I'm talking about like immediately afterwards or, or maybe, maybe weeks, months, years, there, there's certainly there's a learning process going on. Some people come in with a great, like the Apostle Paul, some people come in with a great deal of knowledge. And then when the lights get turned on, like all of that head knowledge, kind of, I mean, it, it, it all falls into place. Okay, now I've got it. I, I, I guarantee you, five minutes after the Apostle Paul was saved, he had a better concept of redemption, the idea of Christ, Son of God. I guarantee he had a better concept of those things than... You and I did five minutes after we were saved. He'd been studying them all of his life. He'd been applying them wrongly. But now the lights are turned on and it all makes sense. Most of us didn't have that kind of background. I've heard of guys going through seminary and, uh, and then later the Lord saves them. So that it must be you know, kind of a similar effect. Or you know, being probably more the case with most of us, we were raised up in church and then when the Lord saves you, a lot of things begin to make sense, right? In fact, that was the case with me. I'm raised up in church. When the Lord saved me, a lot of the things that I've been taught came into that light. So, so I had some head knowledge beforehand about 
I mean, I've always been taught that Jesus died for our sins, that He was the only way of salvation and so forth. So when the Lord saved me, when I was regenerated, oh man, those, those, those things just, just became, I don't know how else to say it, but just you know, became real to me. They were already real. But I mean, I, I began to understand that they were real. That's even true of songs, isn't it? Like, like, uh, like we were talking about the song Amazing Grace earlier. You, you, you hear that differently when you're lost. <laughs> after, I, mean, I, had, I had heard that song countless times before I was saved, but it takes on new meaning when you realize the truth of it. And I'm saying all that just to say this. That this guy didn't have the benefit of a lot of the knowledge that you and I have. And the fact that he doesn't understand that Jesus is not a sinner doesn't mean that his experience wasn't real. Now again, there's a lot of application we, we could make for that today. I mean, people come to Christ, and sometimes we place expectations on them that are unfair. And a lot, I have to, a lot of times, what I, just a little personal testimony here, but a lot of times what I have to do is I think back and I, I, remember, I remember that the, the situations that God put me in, the, the, the Christians that God exposed me to, and, and uh, how helpful they were um, oftentimes by not putting um, unreasonable expectations on me. Because there's a growth process that's got to happen. So while his theology is not where it should be, or, or you know, not where it's going to wind up, let's say it, say it that way, his experience is no less real. And he's convinced of one thing, isn't he? In verse 25, <laughs> one thing I know, I was blind and now I see. That's a pretty good indicator of somebody having encountered the light. What I get more disturbed by, I think what should disturb us more, is when, when we encounter people who may have all the right theology when it comes to Jesus being the sinless Son of God and, and you know the virgin birth and the resurrection and actual literal body, bodily resurrection of the Lord. They've got all of that right, but they don't seem to have a concept of, I was blind and now I see. They don't seem to have any concept of the, cha- the radically changed life. I, I've been transferred from death to life. Transformed. Made new. That ought to trouble us more than just, you know, understanding Reformed theology or something like that. This man, he, he knows that. He knows, I know one thing. I don't know, I don't know who this guy is. I don't, I'm not, I don't know if he's a sinner or not, but I know he changed my life. I was blind, now I see. Now let's, let's move down to the discussion between him and Jesus in verse 35. Now, he was, as I mentioned earlier. The man is put out from the synagogue. That's stated in verse 34. 
<clears throat> they cast him out. That's, that doesn't just mean they, they, they cast him out of their presence. What, the idea here is he's, he's now excommunicated because um, they see him as a follower of Jesus. Now, he's not even, I guess in one sense you could say, he hasn't even fully come in yet because he, <laughs> he doesn't even know but, but he, who Jesus is and everything. But uh, they see him as a follower of Christ, so he's condemned in their view. They cast him out. In verse 35, Jesus heard that they cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, now this is good because the experience is real. The experience he had is real. And again, another evidence that it's real is that he's not going to stagnate. I mean, he starts out with this, I don't know if he's a sinner or not, but he's not going to stay there because the Lord's not going to leave him there. The Lord comes to him and finds him, John says, and starts working on him. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe him? Now, I want want to notice a a, a progression here that I think John is bringing out, and I think... um, the ESV captures good here. In verse 36, he says, Who is he, sir? And then, in verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe. Now, that word sir and the word, and the word Lord in verse 38, um, it's the same word, kurios. But it is a word that it, that was it was used just like it's translated here, I mean, and, it, and it had a very common use where it could it could just mean sir. So you have to judge by context um, when you're reading. Should it be sir or should it be Lord? And and you can tell, uh, like when, for example, when Thomas says to Jesus, "My Lord and my God," well, it's pretty obvious. He's, he's, it doesn't need to be translated sir in that case. <laughs> my sir, you know, sir, not like he's just being respectful. Um, sir and my God, no, 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 no. Uh, he's, he's talking with the resurrected Christ. It, it needs to be translated Lord there, and it is correctly so. But context determines that because it's the same word. And I think the ESV bring, does a good job here in translating it as sir in verse 36 and Lord in verse 38 because what we are seeing in this narrative is progressive understanding happening. Now, first he said, I, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. And I don't know where he is. You know, they want to know where he's at. I don't know. He doesn't know who he is. This man called Jesus. He doesn't know much, seem to know much about him. Jesus comes and says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Well, this is a, a term, a messianic term that Jesus has been constantly connecting to himself. And this guy, again, he doesn't know. I don't know. Who is he, Sir? that I may believe in Him. And Jesus said to him, You have seen Him, and it is He who is speaking to you. Now, understand this. As a Jew, he probably does understand that the, that the, that the phrase, Son of Man, refers to the Messiah. It comes from um, Daniel, the prophet Daniel. It's, it's, it, was a, it was a well-known messianic uh, term from, from the passage in Daniel. So he probably does understand that. So he understands the question, do you believe in the Son of Man? It would be kind of like saying, um, just to paraphrase, it would be kind of like saying, do, do you know who the Son of Man is and do you believe in Him? 
Do you recognize Him? Do you believe in Him? Well, I don't know, sir. Who is He that I may believe in Him? And Jesus says, You have seen Him, and it is He who is speaking to you. So now He answers by saying, Lord, I believe. In other words, He understood Jesus' claim here, His statement. Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man. Very similar to what He does with the woman at the well. I who speak to you am He. And so now, He says, Lord, I believe. And He worshipped Him. You see, there's little, little doubt in verse 38 that that word needs to be translated Lord. And this man is coming to a better... He's had a real experience with Jesus and he's coming uh, little by little, um, actually rather quickly, but, but, but little by little he's coming to a, a better understanding of who Jesus is. Now this is always the case. I think this is another one of those things that is across the board true. It, it'll play out different ways. Like, you know, take different lengths of time. But it'll always be true. A sinner in darkness who's exposed to the light in a, in, in, with a positive result. In other words, they don't, they, they, they're brought in like this man is. They come to the saving knowledge of Christ. They're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. A, a sinner who is regenerated will come to follow and worship Jesus. In other words, they'll know who Jesus is and they will worship Him. That's what happens with this man. His eyes are opened, so there you get a, you get a, a physical um, living illustration of a, of a spiritual truth. And at the same time, this spiritual truth is playing out. This man encounters Jesus, the light of the world. And Jesus not only opens his physical eyes to literal physical light so that he can, for the first time, see the world around him and accurately see things as they are, but he also opens his understanding so that he can see who Jesus is. And the result is, and again, this is always the case, and it's put across with two, two verbs here, the result is he believed in Jesus and he worshipped Jesus. <clears throat> when the light shines, <laughs> when the light shines in darkness, and specifically we're, here we're talking about with a positive result, when the light, when God shines the light into a human heart, when God does His regenerating work on a human heart, so that for the first time, that person sees the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When that happens, that person will believe in Jesus and will worship Him. Would you stand, please? I hope, you know, and this is honestly my prayer. I, like I said earlier, you, 
we don't, we don't see hearts. And when we look at people, we, we can't tell if they're saved and other than just, you know, by getting to know them and by seeing who they are and how they act. We, we, that's, but that's part of the outward. We can only look on the outward. So we don't know if they're genuinely saved and been saved 50 years or if they are genuinely saved and they've been saved five minutes or if they're still in darkness. A lot of times that's just beyond our capacity to perceive. And my hope and prayer, of course, is that everybody in this room truly knows the Lord. But if you're still in darkness, or if you think that that is possibly the case, I exhort you to do this. And that is just gaze upon Jesus, the light of the world. Look to Him to say it another way. Pray for Him to open your eyes. And if you're here and you say, well, you know what? That, that is the case already. I met Jesus. I met Him in darkness. And now I see. <laughs> then I tell you what, let's, let's just be thankful to Him for His amazing grace, like John Newton said. Because John Newton was right. We're great sinners. We're great sinners. I mean, that, that is, in one sense, that's a, that's, a, that's a powerful way to put it, but in another sense, it's an understatement. I mean, we're great sinners. We don't, we don't realize the depths of our sin. But, thanks be to God, we have a great Savior. Right? A great Savior in Jesus. And His grace is greater than our sin. As bad as it is, as bad as it is, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. He can't out be, be outdone. He, he cannot be outdone. So, we walk in the light, and part of that is, is just giving Him thanks, right, for His grace and His goodness. And let's do that as... We close and let's pray.